If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, fans of game development, haters of game development, it does not matter. I want to thank you. I appreciate you. And I most importantly want to welcome you to Game Dev Unchained, the podcast, the number one podcast for video game development and the lifestyle thereof, especially considering game developers like myself and the other person sitting on the other side of this microphone. Yes, we're using the same mic, staring each other directly in the eyes, having mm-hmm. a stare for an hour straight, Mr. Brandon Fan. Right, this is Brandon Fan making a contact with Larry Charles, but I am not bringing a guest or at least one guest. I'm bringing our whole listener support because this is our three-year anniversary. We wouldn't oh, have true. gotten here by ourselves. Three years, three years one episode, uh, 156 episodes. So this is our 156, and uh, we figured. In celebration of us, <laughs> we are going to highlight our last year of interview. That's over 52 episodes. So we had a hard time boiling it down to fit within our format of one hour, right? We boil it down to our 10 highlights, basically. Mm-hmm. But of course, outside of these episodes that we're going to name, uh, feel free to dig back in our inventory. Because looking back, Larry, we talked to a lot of good people there are a lot of lessons and the mission has always remained the same how to be a flexible game developer a successful flexible game developer that can move in and out throughout the industry of different sectors right more so now than ever with so many different sectors of the game industry that in some regards pretty foreign to each other that don't even know about each other in some cases we're talking about indie developers that that are uh, different from mobile developers that are different from triple a developers uh it's like three different sectors that i am proud to have been uh able to talk to these guys to learn more about and hopefully uh you know we can go over them and start sharing with you guys kind of like the lessons that i uh that we remembered the most and kind of discuss with you guys what's up yeah, so this is a, a big, big episode. Obviously, it took a lot of effort from the fans to keep listening. Most importantly, it took a lot of effort from the guests to answer the emails, to jump on the podcast and give us an hour of their time. And without further ado, I think that I just want to personally say, Brandon, it's been a pleasure podcasting with you for three years. Uh, if you would ask me three years ago, would we be here right at this moment? I don't know. You know, I was excited <laughs> to start it. I'm glad that it's still here. I think it's an awesome podcast. It's been fun podcasting with you, bro. So three more years. How about that? Three more years. Yeah. With some zeros behind it. <laughs> we'll see how relevant a bunch of 60 year olds <laughs> talking yeah. about the game history will be. Hopefully by then we'll be like freaking, uh, what, what would you call it? See, uh, well, like Bobby Kodak. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I was gonna say if, you're, if 60 is the bar, right? So like yeah. Peter Molyneux, it might be around that age. Right. So that's the designer that I know who's in That'd that be age. Great. If we come back from that perspective. Yeah. If, 
if he had a podcast, I'd listen to it. Yeah. You know? We started the podcast as disgruntled employees of AAA companies, <laughs> but if we can end the podcast as CEOs to make the industry a better place. Oh my God. Yeah. They'll write movies about us, dude. That'd be great. <laughs> Let's get the show going. There's a, a new format this week. Brandon kind of touched on it. He said, we're going to bring back the highlights. And again, we love doing episodes like this where we cut and paste in some of the audio from the earlier episodes that we've done this year. We know that there's a lot of people who probably don't listen to all the podcast every single week so this is a great way to get introduced to the content or catch up on stuff you might have missed because we've pulled out some very poignant points and some some insight that we really liked from certain episodes brandon uh, i see you're eager psych just kidding played the uno card reverse back to me Uh, i'm going to kick things off for this episode and i want to shout out an old friend of ours buddy one of the best break dancers i've ever podcasted with this is uh mr eric valdez currently senior character artist at sony santa monica uh, notably finished working on God of War 4, did a lot of the great characters in that game. And there's an excerpt in the podcast where we asked him about, you know, students wasting time in art school and how he felt about that. And I would love to use that as the opening moment for this one. So let's go hear what Eric had to say. Exactly, right? That's one of the things that actually even even bothers me till now, right? Even though I know, I know man, uh Almost every student there, it's it's pretty much well set in their path, right? They, mm-hmm. when they go to Norman, they kind of know exactly what they want to do and all this stuff. Every now and then, you do get a couple there. Uh, you start thinking, dude, like it is expensive, man. Mm-hmm. Like you know, do not waste your time. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, and, and it happened. Let's say when I was in the art institute, there was a, a gaming room, and there would be there was a lab room right next to the gaming room. And there will probably be maybe six of us working in the lab, and there will be thirty people playing games or whatever, yeah, right? Right, right. So it's it's at at some point you have to make a decision of like you know it's at least for me, right? It's 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 a lifestyle, right? It's a career cool. choice. It's it's not just a hobby. It's not just something that I do on the side, like so. All the other people, every every person that was in the lab. Um, took it as a lifestyle right and and mm-hmm. all of them uh some of them worked on the industry and then they got out of it and some of them are still working in, in the industry i personally i don't even know any of the of the students that were in the in the game art room mm-hmm. actually, yeah. no but but, but it, it is sad bro like do like it's expensive you go to these expensive schools and you go you come here to play games yeah come on all right, and that was Eric uh, Valdez. Thanks again for Eric uh, coming on. Uh, coincidentally, you know, we we met each other professionally at Spark, but we felt like we knew each other on a personal level because we went to the same institution, the Art Institute. Our experience is very similar. I think overall across the nation, art, uh, art schools kind of spit out the same type of people, bringing the same type of people. There's two groups. One group is usually the one that is playing games a lot basically gamers that go to art school and then the other group are art students who are in the lab day and night same amount of hours Mm. but are producing work that is advancing the career so Mm. it was great that eric kind of validated this um to some that don't attend art school or are thinking about it this is a very uh general consensus of what students are like at art school and uh, I would say incomparably uh, there are more students gaming than doing 
are learning basically so just be careful not to be caught up in the wrong group yeah it was unfortunate because recalling on my own experiences going back to ai there's a a couple of times where like group projects you know and you're like hey where's this where's this guy Mm -hmm. and you yourself go to the cafeteria just to get like a soda or some chips or something on a break and then you see the person who's responsible for one fifth of the project over there playing video games Mm -hmm. right like that's that happened uh i didn't appreciate that but that that kind of stuff happened and you you feel bad because you know how expensive the damn school is and you just right. see these people like paying thousands of dollars to play video games. Yeah. And, uh, and to kind of just like, uh, relate this to a lot of professionals out there. I know like if you look back at schools, uh, or your education, you probably had the same experience, but you fast forward to now when you're trying to work on your side hustle, you're trying to work on extra stuff. It's the same principles. It's like habits, you can change, but they do die hard, right? It's difficult to kick that habit. If you're going home and you're playing games right away, most likely you're not going to have the time or the energy to actually look forward to work on side business. So I'm seeing that those same types uh, on a different level, right? Yes, now you're an eight-hour professional, but are you putting the extra work to not just even uh, try to create a business, but to stay caught up on technology, like the extra time? is necessary for you to stay ahead of the curve and not be the yeah. old guy in the office. Yeah. So I, I see a lot of what I did in school helped me professionally to continue to push on because it is very enticing uh, to go home and play games. I would love it. Actually, I, I complain about it in my head. I wrestle with that concept. It's like, you know, I'm a game developer. I need to stay relevant by playing games as research. But there are a lot of things that I have to learn to making a business more. Right. It's not about having just a good idea. I think for me, it has to be like 90% of knowing how to be self-sustainable to then have a good idea to, to float. Basically it's like, for, for me, it's like, how do I stay relevant after the fact that how do I figure this, this thing I never tackled before out, which yeah. is business basically. I guess for me, when I look at it, it just comes down to discipline. I would say that there's nothing wrong with going to art school and playing video games and enjoying video games. There is something wrong with doing that irresponsibly, right? Like you have time for class, you have time for homework. And when those priorities are done, if you're like, eh, I've got an hour, you know, by all means. Exactly. But when you're not in class and you're playing video games or when you come home and you you just play games because you're home versus like, you know what, I'm going to play for an hour and then I'm going to work on portfolio or work on X without having those disciplinary boundaries in your life. It's very easy to just use all of that free time as video game time. And that's first for people. So this subject is actually perfect for our our next highlight, which is uh, Claus Peterson from episode 120. So in this particular segment, Claus is talking about how, uh, him and his schoolmates, uh, a group of 18 students, was able to turn a school project into a indie-funded project, which was their first game for their indie studio and what that transition was like. So what you do is you, you start up doing some kind of, you know, you, you start up doing a, a, a game in a week mm-hmm. with the 18 people. Like, this is very much to just tr- trial and error and kind of like, uh, just understand where each other are, and then you do some some small um, task along the way, kind of like get you know the team to know each other, and and you learn a lot. And then like what the, the core of the uh, whole um, 
studies is six weeks where you just really um, you have uh, you have six weeks and then you get the computers and the software and then it's like just now it's up to the uh, to the producer to kind of organize everything and get this thing uh, going um, but as kind of like roles are defined uh, prior so it's you you are you are a programmer or you're um, artist or a designer or whatever like those roles are defined it's much more how you like interact with each other that's that's just left to uh you know the team to find out and yeah uh it's pretty smart you know the way that they kind of went at it to just work their way through as a team the, the test he said as far as defining the roles and seeing how well people do and that's I, kind of risky i guess but you get i mean if you're new right like if you're a student level I think that that's everything is risk, right? Like, right. of course, everyone's new. No one has worked together before. No one has rapport. No one has a history of success. So, yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that. I stand by that. I think that's good. Yeah, I think the greatest lesson that uh, that helps most developers, especially in this case, is that they had a, a time box, was able mm -hmm. to budget everyone's uh, effort right with being able to know that uh in six weeks they have to realize something yeah. so that helps drive and i think make decisions that needed to be made so that the game itself can actually come i mean it's it's pretty pretty much a good game jam for six mm -hmm. weeks and and through that experience i think it helps kind of confirm a lot of the forming a, a company afterwards for them right because now they work together in, in some capacity they trust each other at a certain point. They can depend on each other. They know what everybody acts like in not just their best moments, but in their stressful mm -hmm. moments. So I think it's a practice that uh, most developers are not implementing as much, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, people who go indie might go in it pretty cold after they get a budget and everything, but now finding out people's ticks and and and, and weaknesses is it's like even more pressure to actually deliver on time so it's great that they even as students they knew the correct way i feel like to actually get things done because obviously they made three games after that uh, or two games after that so three games in total uh with that same principle right could you imagine starting a game company on student level expectation of salary right like that's oh my God. hey check this out no I'm gonna context give you, whatsoever they give you thirty five thousand dollars yeah it really just depends on 40 the grand like honesty it's like all right so i'm a producer yeah. right? obviously 50 percent cut of everything <laughs> and i'm your mentor yeah, no. so yeah it's, it's more power to them man that's power awesome to them. yeah Let's see, I don't have as good of a segue, but um, I guess now's a great time to talk about the person that I wanted to bring up is I really enjoyed this episode of the podcast, especially since I'd never heard of or thought that somebody would be like, hey, you know, I'm kind of doing amateur level game trailers and like, oh, you know what? Now I'm doing professional indie game trailers. Oh, now I'm doing professional trailers for top level games. You know, and I hobbied my way through this. I enjoyed making film. I enjoyed making trailers. I'm talking about none other than Mr. Derek Liu. He's a famous video game trailer editor. You can see his stuff online. Specifically, the one that caught my attention that helped us land him for the podcast was Firewatch. I'm a big fan of Firewatch, mm -hmm. and I love the work that he did doing the trailer for them when they were announcing the game. 
So we kind of asked him, you know, as a something that we can do to help other game developers out there who want to make trailers, what are some top five things that you could add to your game or to your project to make it trailer friendly? So let's listen to what he said. Well, it depends um, on this, the type of game that they have. Sure. But I'm, I'm going, I'm scrolling through my talk right now to see other things. <laughs> uh, but like um, camera controls are a big are a big one. So if you have, especially for 3D games, so usually with like a first-person shooter or a third-person game, you want your everything to be very responsive. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to move the stick, and then everything happens right away. So then that you can turn around and shoot someone or something like that. But you don't want that for capturing because you want all your camera movements to be very smooth. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I want to be able to to move this thumbstick and then have the camera move gradually start and then gradually end at the very end. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are different ways to do that, like making the dead zones bigger or changing like the sensitivity according to the thumbstick um, position or uh, camera smoothing, which is like averaging out the inputs over a certain amount of time. So that one, I just actually got that on those, those tools on a game I'm working on for E3. Um, and I was like, oh, yes, because this is the first time that since my GDC talk that I could just say, hey, this is what you should implement. And they put it in and it's great. I'm like, mm-hmm. this camera moves going to be super smooth now. Um, there's some other ones that are good, like being able to freeze time. Mm-hmm. That's really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like third-person games. Uh, the first time I saw that was at the, the agency. They were working on uh, the Arkham Batman Arkham games. So when Batman's fighting, you could just pause and then move the camera to a different angle and then continue. So then you could basically make like a match cut, kind of like in a like a Jackie Chan fight scene or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a really good one to have because certain things are time sensitive. So just to be able to like stop the clock and then position the camera to where you want it to um that's really good um and there's just a lot of things that are just kind of they're probably already in there like skipping around levels or teleporting um being able to like spawn enemies anywhere you want because sometimes you just find a section of like a level where it looks really pretty but you kill the guy and you have to reload the level but if you just can spawn them again then that's really handy um those are some of them this i could go on all day really but those are some good good. ones that don't usually show up um but yeah camera camera options are really the top one i'd say and then like sensitivity controls and especially if it's sensitivity controls which are sliders not like don't make me like open the console and enter point zero 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 one two because like that number means a totally different thing from an, one game to the other one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like I'm like in my head I'm like logically this should make it faster, right? Like no, no, it makes it slower. I don't know anything about making games. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Sweet, yeah. I you know I never really thought about some of the stuff that he was asking in there, right? Like as a game developer, I'm just usually thinking about product number one, which is make the game for the consumer. And I'd say over the last three years, four years, I'm starting to pay attention a lot more to like photo mode and the things like kind of like Derek was mentioning was having really good camera controls, but more so features that actually let you do something different with the camera outside of gameplay. Great for making trailers. Uh, So, yeah, if you have the time and the bandwidth to add that to your game, 
definitely do so. It's great for the experience, but more importantly, it's a great way to capture footage for your trailer. And then it definitely helps to use third-party software instead of making your own, right? Obviously, Mm -hmm. Unreal and Unity has great camera controls. They have these abilities to turn off UI. They have these abilities to uh, hopefully teleport your your players Mm -hmm. around so that you can capture certain levels and things. I mean, these are controls that probably... I remember in the episode, like, it is, like, a reason why someone like Derek is brought on to cut a trailer. Because most indie developers, you know, we champion the idea that they wear multiple hats. But we want the resources to be put into designing the game and not trying to spend on marketing the game. Because that's a whole different job. And your first trailer especially, you would think that you that's your baby. That's your first uh, uh, picture to show to the world and everything. You want your... You, you, on uh, the ground floor micromanaging everything but it's quite the opposite it's like you know you still have a game to deliver it's basically starting the clock before you ship when you show that trailer because now everyone's paying attention to your every move versus before you release that first trailer you kind of just kind of worked within your budget and that was it right so it's it's kind of great that he touched upon that episode uh and like the the things that he has to struggle with and thankfully, you know, it's it's a software that has these tools readily provided for him so that then it doesn't take away time from the development team to de- develop these tools just for him to cut these trailers. So my next introduction uh, is a man from the mobile world, right, that originally started in the PC console market. So... We talk about transitioning into different parts and segments of the industries all the time. And we love bringing on these guys who have done that, (laughs) did done that and like are gurus when it comes to like jumping markets and changing different jobs. So Lucas Gonzalez, he's a product manager at Zepto Labs. You might have heard of those guys. You know, cut the rope Mm -hmm. Uh, before he was at Gameloft. But over at Zepto Labs, he was the PM, basically, on Cats, Crash Arena Product Manager. Jeez. Number one free game in most markets. Top 50 grossing game of uh, iOS game in the U.S. So, tremendous success. Uh, in this particular segment, he talked about the difference designing games for console and PC and mobile. And uh, that's, of course coming from a traditional background like ours, AAA console, whatever, it was a awakening call for him and a lot of things that he learned. And obviously he's been in that sector way longer than any of us, most of us really. So it was great to get some insight. Maybe if I had worked before in RTS or something like that, I, I had that background, mm-hmm. but I didn't. So yeah, basically the, the market all the free-to-play, like, standard, mm-hmm. um, and all these things, to, in my case, are, are, are about balancing. But, and, and now, sorry, guys, I talk sometimes a lot. No, it's okay. <laughs> when, when, when I'm checking my, well, it's an interview. <laughs> no, when I'm checking the, um, my, back, my, I go to LinkedIn. No, I go to, uh, <laughs> how, Just see what's how, up. <laughs> yeah, how many years I've been, like, working. And then it's like, because in my in my head it's like hey I, I make like games and I start working on console PC 
And now I'm becoming more and more experienced about like mobile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, oh, I look like a mobile game designer mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's, it's like uh, six years, something like that, working on, on mobile games. So, yeah, it's, it's but still, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I have a lot of friends that yeah. I used to work with them making console PC. And still, sometimes it's so difficult for I feel for them to really appreciate what <laughs> what you are doing. So yeah, that was Lucas Gonzalez. You know, big man on campus for the. Yeah, that was world. a fun one. I remember that one. Uh, what's great about that particular segment because it gave some good uh, views on what it is like if we, if I, if I was to go into the mobile space and work on a big mobile company like that. And, you know, I I think, I think from where you come from going into mobile, uh, you always kind of face that decision because you're, you're, you're kind of used to a certain way of making games and mobile is like a different breed, man. They think so differently. You go to a mobile company and I would say 80 to 90% of that staff have only lived in that space. Like I would even say they came straight from college and that's all they know. And so, and I think it has a lot to do with the uh, success uh, that they've had because they didn't have any of that baggage from bad practices in the console PC market, didn't have that crazy political, they were able to create a culture free from that. So um, it was nice to hear from him to kind of just like fight with that a bit to, uh, uh, to, un- to, you know, check his LinkedIn. Now he's leveled. Now he has equal ex- amount of experience uh, working in both spaces. And now his perspective as a game developer is more complete. I believe yeah. makes him a stronger candidate for anything that he wants to do in the future, basically. That was a great episode. And anybody who says their experiences somewhere make them feel like a game designer is someone who's okay with me. <laughs> but they're, you know, as long as they're not disrespecting game designers. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> oh, this is so easy. I feel like a game designer. <laughs> I'm done. All right, Larry, let's hear a word from our sponsors and some other news. Yeah. Sponsors being ourselves wearing these tight ass t-shirts. What's up, guys? We have finally some swag. Listeners out there have been asking us for t-shirts. We have them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're doing something a little fun this month. We're going to do hashtag Team Larry, hashtag Team Brandon. <laughs> we have shirts available in yellow or black shirts. We'll just let you figure out which is which. <laughs> and basically, <laughs> you can buy the shirts. And at the end of the month, we're going to count You know which ones you has the higher player count and maybe we can do something fun larry where uh the losers i don't know that's all right we'll figure it out but whatever it's going to be don't let team black lose if you want a t-shirt get it in whatever size you need but just make sure you order in black so if you want to purchase the shirts just go over to our main website www.gamedevunchained.com You'll find the store and you'll be able to figure it out. If you want a chance to win a t-shirt, we're giving away five this month at the end of the month. Just share any blog posts, any story. Make sure you tag us on Facebook or Twitter and you're entered into the raffle. 
Make sure you hashtag Team Lair, yeah. Team Brandon. Yeah. If you, you want to enter the raffle, just help us promote, share, and raise some awareness. But definitely make sure you tag us. We will receive the tag, let you know that we got you, so you'll know that you're in. And good luck. Uh, congratulations to all the winners who will get these shirts. They're pretty awesome, especially the black ones. They look great. Dang, dude, your your scene's looking pretty sharp, but it, it's like it's getting faster and faster that you're working on this kind of stuff. I usually it takes you a while, but you know you cleared a whole room in like the last hour. I was watching over your shoulder. What's going on? This is all thanks to Quixel Mega Scans, the photogrammetry program from Quixel that allows me to use photogrammetry textures and assets to put into my scene. It's as easy as drag and drop, and it's something that you, I, anybody in the game industry can use right now. Oh, nice. Well, where do I go and find out more about Quixel and Megascans? Go to megascans.se. You can use our promo code GDU. That gives you 30% off for the first three months. But what exactly do I get if I use that promo code? You get a couple apps, right? Megascans is a library, so uh, they update that every week. Also, you have... uh, Quixel Mixer that allows you to kind of customize your own textures using their library and the Quixel Bridge that allows you to uh, easily integrate it into Unreal Engine or Unity. It's going to be really helpful for you. So if you want to be able to use photorealistic art in your games, in your architectural previs, in whatever 3D projects you're working on, and you need high-level, top-quality-looking art, you can definitely go to Quixel Suite, get Megascans, you can use Bridge, and you can also use Mixer. That's a heavy combination, and it's available for less money than it normally costs. So exactly. definitely use our code. Begin your make, subscription now. Yeah, and you yes. can make art that looks like Brandon's. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well... Um, the card that I'm going to play is uh, Mr. Carl Armfelt. He's currently his portfolio manager at Sweet Bank Robur. I believe I said that right. And uh, they're over there investing in and inquire, acquiring game companies. And so we had an opportunity to talk to him for about an hour and 15 minutes, I think it was. And I just straight up asked, you know, how he felt about the pricing models in the game industry right now. And I mean, he kind of, he let us have it. He told us exactly how he felt and what, what's right and what's not right. So let's, let's dive on in. I, I, I think I, I have a mixed feeling. Yeah. Uh, I think over time, uh, if I'm going inv- to be involved personally in, in a brand I love, I would like to see a lot of expansions on it. I, th- I think yeah. just that's the right way to, to entertain the uh, consumer. And, yeah. I, but I, I think as well, I mean, this is a global industry and, and gamers can be quite picky. Mm-hmm. So you will always, I think, strike a good balance between monetization and, and, and content. I think that gamers are very informed buyers. I mean, it's not like going to your electronics store and the salesperson can tell you whatever and you just pick up a product. I mean, people, there's so many reviews, there's so many streamers, people are really knowledgeable at, they're very rational where, where they spend their money. I mean, just look at the data from Steam on, in terms of, if you like a title, you think it's a bit expensive, you may wait for the first sale and then you buy it at, you know, 25% discount or, or whatever. So I think that the, the $60 model is going away. I think that the two prevailing models will be freemium, mm-hmm. like Fortnite, which is always going to be the, the mass market model. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's going to be 
$25, $30 base game with, with expansions. Mm-hmm. And you have to make a great game because otherwise people don't buy expansions. Yeah. And you have to make great expansions. I think, I think those are the two prevailing uh, models. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, those people who love gaming and they love to play games still, if you compare it to any other thing, I mean, going to a restaurant or going to a movie, I mean, your, your per hour entertainment cost is, is as long as trying to do what they're doing. Yeah. Um, actually, now we have a Finnish company, Rovio, making Angry Birds. Mm-hmm. They're trying to launch a big subscription platform for mobile gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, oh, always can, gonna have, you're always going to have subscriptions. You're always going to have bundles. Um, and uh, end of the day, I mean, the payment models that are successful, it just, it, it just hinges on what, what consumers are willing to pay for. Um, so... So we've been talking about like a lot of the triple A side and the mobile side is like part of the same species, but it's a whole different breed. And you're mentioning Rovio. Um, when it comes to mobile companies like Rovio or any other companies that you guys invest in, in the mobile space, what, what are the key differences are you seeing, if there are any at all, in, in the, the way they operate things for, for growth? <laughs> The, the big, biggest difference between a mobile company and a PC or console company is that they have to spend a lot more on user acquisition. It's a more mathematical model. Uh, you measure a lot more. You do a lot more iterations. And, um, and the divider there is which companies can actually scale profitably. Mm-hmm. And that's proven to be very tough. And if you see any trend change there is that uh, scaling has become much more tougher, especially in casual over the last 24 months. I mean, mm-hmm. Facebook advertising is getting more expensive. Uh, Google has changed some of the UX on the App Store, which has not been great for the casual genre. Mm-hmm. And, and th- that's the biggest difference between mobile and, and PC. And then maybe over time, there will be some convergence. I mean, maybe Fortnite is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there, there will be uh, successful mobile companies out there, but it's proven that the companies that we have been involved in, it's actually been much, much more tougher to, to be invested in some of the mobile companies. So, yeah, uh, it was sad to hear another person not mention $60 games anymore, but that's just, you know, that's where I feel like things are going as well. You know, like he said, Fortnite came out and changed the game. So I can say this. I think that the $30 price point could become the new $60 price point. But I still see the like 1999 games, the 1499 games. Right. And then even on mobile, two, three, four. Like I see such a plethora of buying options. But what I don't see is the like super premium anymore. The collector's edition plus X plus Y. 100 bucks like Mm -hmm. those are going to be dying out left and right man physical stuff with your game is going to start dying out in my opinion i think that the one key thing i would like to underline from what he said is yes we are dealing with so much more informed buyers but we're also dealing with people who have many 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 choices on what they can spend their money on and so Back in the day when this was the only way to buy your game was to buy the $60 game. When that was, that's how you got games. You know what I mean? Right. Now you can get games on your phone. You can get games on your iPad. You can get games on your Kindle Fire Stick. You can get games, you know what I mean, on your refrigerator if you have one of those smart 
freaking whatever they're doing now. Like it's there's so many ways competing for that sixty dollars that buying one game versus buying fifteen games. You know what I mean? It's I, I get it. I yeah, get it. So I really urge a lot of listeners to really um uh listen to to Carl because mm-hmm. you know going back to the episode especially one forty eight, uh Carl's company owns like a percentage stock for for Take Two, Rovio, Starbreeze. I mean the list goes on. So he's at the forefront of a lot of these conversations of where the future of AAA gaming is looking like. And I I completely agree because the two prevailing platforms for buying games, Freemium, which we know uh, the mobile space is dominating, and in in, in AAA taking notice like Fortnite, right? And, of course, uh, uh, a lower price point but more expansions, basically, improving the game which I see Overwatch becoming or pretty much any of the Blizzard games starting to really adopt, right? Unless there's a huge generational uh, with so much technology coming at a faster rate, the longer wait, the less relevant relevance that you become Mm -hmm. as a product. So uh, these two price models, I think is fastly becoming the norms mainly because getting your product out first to test and then to uh what would you call it like uh to um integrate not integrate uh when you're improving little by little iterate to iterate yeah, yeah. is uh is what he's kind of hinting at yeah, and i i want to i'm going to co-sign to something that you threw out there just now in your response is that like the longer it takes for your game to be made the worse your initial projections are going to be right like if i were to ask you what you're doing tomorrow i would bet with a reasonable amount of accuracy you would be able to tell me if i asked you what you're doing in a week what your life is like in a week right. you're still probably pretty accurate if i then said three years from now brandon mm-hmm. <laughs> on friday september yeah. the 8th of 20 yeah. what is that 2021 right what are you gonna be doing like what's your life like right so much media not just (laughs) games have changed my opinion and my taste in those three years Mm -hmm. so much content we're talking about just like maybe netflix alone holy Mm -hmm. crap how much movies and shows have gone in a single month and you're telling me three years from now am i gonna like your little fantasy game that you thought Mm -hmm. was cool three years ago like I've probably seen it or I'm playing Fortnite yeah. or, or the new next trend. Right. So it's, it's a very interesting episode that I, I highly recommend because it's a heavy hitter with uh really sound opinions yeah. on this type of stuff. Plus he drops gems on how to get your company bought. So if that's something that you want to do, you know, next definitely go check is- out that episode. So we we like interviewing all types of developers and this particular developer uh nina freeman from episode 142 is a well-established independent developer she's currently at fulbright uh she was a level designer in tacoma she uh independently made civil and uh other titles that she uh worked on herself Recently, she's been uh, featured in The Guardian as the top six game changers uh, developers. She's alongside Neil Drunkman, 
you know, that guy from Naughty Dog that worked on Last of Us, Last of Us 2, and Uncharted 4. Yeah, she's within that crowd. Yeah. So it was great for her to sit down and kind of talk to us about uh, something that we can relate to, which is work-life balance uh, as an independent developer and not feel burnout even as an independent developer, that no one's pushing you but you pushing yourself because of passion. I mean, I don't really think I've figured it out because, like, I basically, like, accepted a bunch of commissions and stuff while I was working on Tacoma. And, like, even I was, I sh- we shipped Sybil, like, when I went, was working on Tacoma. So, like, right. I've released, I've been, like, I mean, the teams of collaborators have varied. Um, but, like, myself and my various collaborators have sh- shipped, like, three or four games or whatever while I was working on Tacoma. So that was like crazy. So the time management stuff was pretty simple because for me, because it was like, I only have after work in the weekends to work and that's like not actually that much time. So I would just like use all of it, um, which was pretty bad and unhealthy. And like, I had like no social life for a long time because of it. Uh, And then really only very recently, like when Tacoma finally like came out, was I like, I sat back and was like, why do I feel so awful? (laughs) Mm. Um, And so then I was like, I'm not going to work on anything new for like a while, at least until like we start really doing something new with Fulbright, which like I'm doing some like contracting level design on this game, uh, Underworld Ascendant with Other Side Studio, um, Other Side Entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I have been like working on stuff but that's like for day like that's for Fulbright so that's like day job stuff so I'm like it's fine I still need to like make money so I can work on that stuff but as far as like side projects go I just like haven't started a new one since Tacoma came out just to like recover <laughs> from shipping that many games and shipping Tacoma um so for me it's just been like force unlearning that behavior because i think i learned a lot of it in like grad school where you're like Mm -hmm. always working on something gotta do your master's thesis whatever like the schedule was really tight and you're basically like always like having to work on something for school Mm -hmm. and then they let you go and like don't really tell you that you can relax now (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i'm only now like four years later like realizing that i should take a break for the first time like Mm -hmm in a very very long time right um and a lot of that has just been yeah not like refusing to like work on anything on the side until i feel recovered and then even if i do start working on something like it'll be with all of that like with that lesson in mind like probably don't work every single weekend and every day after work kind of thing right 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 um so yeah i wouldn't say i figured it out but i'm just like not letting myself work on anything until I feel like I'm prepared to like actually do that in a healthier way. All right. Well, it definitely helps like for that period to kind of build up your craft and get better and better Mm. faster. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I I think it's good to like work on lots of projects and like do things at a fast pace, but like I was able to do that back then, like in grad school and stuff, it like, wasn't Mm -hmm. really tiresome. Like I felt super in it, but then I think after many years of that, you get kind of tired (laughs) and like, we'll just like burn out naturally. So like, I think it's important to like, listen to yourself. And if like, you can be in that space and it feels Mm -hmm. healthy, then that's fine. But 
if it's like destroying parts of like your social life or whatever and like you're really right. tired all the time like you should probably stop yes <laughs> there's so many factors that uh makes you realize <laughs> that you can't keep that going like yeah. burning the midnight oil like I, I realized that myself i used to be able to stay up all night do all these different things but now and it's not even about tiredness or passion it's more there's just real life stuff that happens as you age yeah yeah that you value definitely. more and it's like hey maybe there's other things that i would rather do with this time. yeah and you don't want to like i feel like it's so easy to like lose because like when you're a game developer you're like working at your computer a lot if you're doing digital stuff so like you're not necessarily going out and it's like people like you want to like have connections with people in your life like especially as a game developer like and for me as someone who works on narrative stuff like if i'm not having social interactions like where am i ever gonna like find right. inspiration exactly. <laughs> you know so even like if you have to think about it that way like that's another reason to just like be really Experience. careful um exactly one of the less important reasons but definitely something that like motivates me to take it easier on myself so yeah, that was Nina Freeman. Uh, I think a lot of things, crunch is something we can all relate to as a game developer, but it is quite a new concept, uh, to me at least, as an independent developer. Imagine working for yourself, which kind of makes sense, right? And in some point, you're starting the clock right when you go independent, and you're always thinking about how to lengthen your runway mm-hmm. in terms of money and finance. Uh, you couple that with finally being able to, to work on things that you care about and have full control. And I can see the passion really taking over, which is great at the very beginning. But how long can you keep that fire burning until you yourself burn yourself out on your ideas? And in any creative industry, like the game industry, yeah. it relies on experience. It relies on uh, well-being. It relies on everything to create something that is meaningful and hopefully involve everybody that that wants to play it you know every time i listen to this episode i'm reminded of how shitty i am at getting stuff. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> yes i have to give her credit man to have a full-time job at a game developer and have crunch on projects that you're pushing out there to then go home and spend the time and work on projects that are meaningful to yourself putting out your projects there knowing full well you're going to sacrifice health peace of mind life balance and you know social life uh, and i guess where i give her the golden carrot on like doing so well for that goal and chasing it the right way is that it, it seemed like it was a binary switch for her where she said and then i got to a point where we pushed civil out it was done mm-hmm. and i said i need a social life again so i stopped i didn't do any new projects i didn't fill that new time with more games right So she pushed and she burnt the wax that she needed to, to get the two games out that were important to her. She had a release and then she had her professional release. And then it's like, okay, now I can go back to having my job, having a social life, let myself recover, restore, you know, the Zen and uh, then probably attack it again some other time. So. Yeah, that's fantastic. Jesus. Awesome. And again, anyone listening, if you really want to feel like a piece of, no, I'm just kidding. If you need a motivating episode, listen to this episode because go look at the games that she's made, right? Like, right. let's start with that. Go look at the games that she's made. These aren't like little crap games. Like there's, mm-hmm. they're varied. You know what I mean? They're unique. Very they're well out. done. 
And then also realize the fact that she was doing that on the side of her full-time job. If you need a poke in the butt, like you're not working hard enough, this episode will do it. Yeah. Oh, right, let's, uh, let's pep it up a little bit, slow it down. Uh, this guy that I'm about to introduce on the podcast, I'm pretty sure you've seen his artwork before, even if you didn't see the signature underneath it. I'm talking about Mr. Kim and Chan. He's a principal artist at Stella right now. And, he kind of told us a funny story. This isn't even like an advice moment. This isn't a like career advancement or motivation moment. This simply is just how we were teasing him for becoming BFFs with George Lucas while he was working at Lucasfilm. So let's roll the camera. Uh, let's roll back and go relive that moment. <laughs> is that a common thing? Is that a, like? Is there like an inner circle that he directly talks with, or was it? No, no, they just like my work. He just likes my work and find out. George came up to you and he's like, hey, uh, is it like every two week dailies or how, how did that whole thing work? Was that crazy? As a fan? It was crazy, yeah. It was crazy. They're meeting with George Lucas. So what? Right. Did he just come up to you and like, hey, you're going to have to do a meetup with George? I think I was kind of like, I was, on, I was kind of in this weird, like, what am I doing here? Because like, I only had like one year experience. Before yeah. that, right? Like the, the one year full time experience. Yeah. And I'm up there and doing characters, and basically everyone else on the team Super had at least 10 years of experience. Yeah. 15 years, like my boss was like, you know, he's art director on Destiny 2. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what? So I'm just like around these like super intelligent, like, like insanely talented people. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm just uh, so, yeah, it was surreal, kind of surreal, but you know. So let me ask you, when was the first time where you knew specifically that George Lucas liked a specific piece of your artwork? Oh, you he's, got this, he's got a system. Okay. Like in terms of, I mean, yeah, I think that was probably the last to see it. Like, like. Uh, he so he, we post these our images on on these foam boards every mm-hmm. two weeks or whatever, and then he'd have like a collection of stamps. Mm. So like, so one would say like uh, good, one would say like okay, it is what it is, you know, like uh, and then like if you really liked it. And there was one that said Fabuloso. You really wanted to go for the Fabuloso cat. Mm. So on a lot of my pieces for that project, you mm. were almost the eighty percent of the time Fabuloso. So, Whoa, humble mm. brag. Yeah. And that is that so, when it started? When he started to talk to you directly about things, or? Uh, he, who am I in that crowd? Right, like. Yeah. I felt like, you know, I'm just a new artist. Right. George is like, every time George goes in the room, there's like an entourage of like 20 people or whatever. Right. So basically, you know, he's just coaching people work. Right. Um, so as far as like one on one time that I actually had with him, maybe like two seconds. Hi. Wait, can you pass me the salt? Hey, thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, like, in the beginning, yeah, he, he really liked my work, so he was, like, okay. complimenting my work and stuff nice. like that. So, 
Got you. That's pretty awesome. So, yeah, I rubbed shoulders with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Let me ask this but, then. If you have work that's on the Fabuloso board a couple of times, but you're also the new artist there. Was there any like oh, tension yeah. that you felt, you know, with some of those 10 year artists who were on the okay, good enough boards? No, it was a small team. I, it was super yeah. small. It was only five of us. So everything was like very intimate. Got you. you know? uh, like us on the team, and then George would come in, and I'm like, he super bring, obvious. you know, friends or. <laughs> Um, you get after you get those stamps you gotta sit differently it's like I, uh, how does a fabulosa <laughs> yeah. sit i think i was eat? i didn't <laughs> have a table? reference What's point though so what? i didn't have a re- i didn't have a reference point though so he would like i i just thought that like oh he just likes a lot of stuff but apparently he's really picky well especially when especially with star wars stuff though like when it came to star wars yeah like almost nothing was fabuloso. Like mm. Mike and a fabuloso. Did he ever just call you fabuloso? <laughs> Blue Moon, you get a fabuloso in Star Wars. But for this project, I think I guess my sensibilities and my like my gut feelings for things was right on point with what he wanted. Yeah, you know, that's that's gotta feel good to be the new guy at the place about a year's worth of experience at the at Lucasfilm and then just having George Lucas be like, Yeah, this is the one that I like. This is the next scene in the Star Wars movie that Disney's gonna make. You know? <laughs> yeah. But like that's that's just a cool feeling, you know. Senpai noticed me as they say. Yeah, I imagine the ego with all those stamps on all your work. It's like, oh yeah, that's George Lucas. You didn't get you didn't get what was it? What was the stamp that was it excellent or something? Yeah, <laughs> something yeah. A little gold star. Else. Yeah. The gold star. Um, yeah. what's great about Kidman is like he went through such a journey of um of being a concept He did it all. I mean, he 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 was originally like a, a character digital painter, but his first job was traditional drawing at at freaking Disney and shit, right? He was working on uh for that and was able to go through over 15 years of industry experience of all types of industries. And, and for someone like that, that he felt like he's done so much anatomy. Uh, he perfected his craft to a point where, you know, it reminds me of one of those like old Kung Fu movie uh, series. You know, I have beaten all the opponents that's, has stood before me now what else is there and he's like mm. traveling around looking for challenges and you know at the very end he was talking about topography right like mm. completely like what where you don't <laughs> he went from drawing details I'm so good at art i have to invent ways to make Go myself to simplify to make art harder for me make yeah. art harder for me yeah. yeah so he and he completely has the credibility to say a badass because look at his stuff make sure to look kinman chan um so when i at least when I met him to, to find the humility because he, he, when you meet him in person and when you talk to him, you don't get that sense of an ego, but that episode in particular was very uh, surprisingly shocking to me because he started with a crazy ego because he had such a great start in the industry, working on the first red redemption, kicking back with George Lucas. He had this streak of like high level, uh praise uh and so with that comes with you know hey maybe i am a badass and then you know being 
going through the journey of the game industry and being humbled a bit too to finally to the point where I met him and can't even tell. I was like, wow, man, that is a full artist's journey of the badass, uh, high yeah. hyper ego guy who who is now like like the the quiet monk yeah. <laughs> that doesn't really celebrate his own success. He he started Ken Masters and he yeah. became Ryu. I know. That's, I that's, that's insane. That's great. That's like backwards for most developers, you know. And that joke is that. That's a meta joke. <laughs> you have to look at his artwork. To look understand. at his artwork. Yeah, then yeah. you're like, oh shit. That's that Larry dude. Every now and then, I, I hit you with one. <laughs> so I'll hit you with this one. Uh, this right. next one that I want to introduce is from episode 135. Adam Saltzman. He's the guy who made Cannibal. He's the guy to blame for free running (laughs) to endless runners just just for a second could you imagine making a game like so dope and simple in concept that you spawn this whole like you're the guy that started or girl but you're the guy that started like temple runner free runner games imagine being that first person who made goat simulator and now all the simulator of like random physics yeah things is like oh that's that's crazy so in that episode he takes us through that journey you know that uptick and you know the advantages and disadvantages of creating such a hit uh but in this particular segment i want to introduce his successful strategies uh when it comes to adapting to pendulum shifts uh for trends like this is you know the year of Fortnite and how it impacted not just triple a but mobile games and indie games and how that affects the way you pitch the way you frame your games to audiences you know the expectations have changed so this is a little segment that kind of touches upon that but i think if you are a game developer or publisher for the next like year or so and you don't make uh fortnite uh that like <laughs> you know, there are a lot of opportunities that are going to not really be available to you. Um, And uh, I think being, it's more like, I'm more concerned about like, you know, it's not even whether that's good or bad or uh, whether you should be upset or not. It's more just like, just be aware of it. That's the landscape right now. And, you know, uh, keep that in mind when you're talking to storefronts or whatever. And, uh, trying to look at what your games do and what, what are storefronts into right now? And, you know, can you find some kind of shared interest there and find people there who want to champion the, the, maybe the weird thing that you made. Um, Cause people did feel, I felt like we did get people to do that around night in the woods. And that's a weird game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It has a main character in it, but like, I mean, you hang around town for a few days that's like the whole game is not a normal, uh, you don't, um, you don't save the world and you don't, um, you don't have XP and, you know, uh, you don't unlock new, uh, yeah, you never unlock like new fatalities or anything. So like, um, uh, I think, uh, but it's okay because there are other things that people value. There's, the um, the visuals and the sense of place and the iconic soundtrack and all of these things. And, um, yeah, it's just a matter of like looking around and seeing what, um, 
uh, seeing what people are interested in, what people want to promote and what they, what they value and how does that overlap? And I think that, um, yeah, that's at the end of the day, that's a very game to game concern for sure. Yeah. And that's Adam Saltzman, man. He is, uh, you know, he, he's running his own studio, Fiji and, uh, he has a lot of experience, you know, he started as an indie developer, but now, you know, they're also transitioned into game publishing. And of course, Night in the Woods is out to great acclaim, right? It's one of the big indie game titles of this year. Uh, what's great of what he said is that, you know, there's always going to be distractions, especially in an industry like ours. And uh, it's good to be aware of them, but to always stay true to what you're trying to create, because yeah. that message is what people value the most. Uh, like any investments or anything, if you're chasing somebody, then you're always behind. Mm. If you're trying to express something that hasn't been said before, or you're trying to say something really true to yourself, then that always going to shine through in whatever decade, whatever years, uh, it should be valuable uh, to somebody out there. If mm. it's uh, from where your heart is and you know if the intention is good and clean so one thing that like i'm going to co-sign again is being aware of the state of the marketplace right like that's you know knowing how customer buying trends are shifting to and fro but not letting things like that kind of influence maybe your micro level decision making you know what i mean like sure from the company level you need to know like all right we should probably stop making minesweeper games because people aren't buying them anymore Mm -hmm. but if you're on a current project like yeah let your project live let it be the project that you you know spawned it to be uh the thing that i do want to touch is what I see a lot of in the industry right now especially in the reason why we even bring out Fortnite in the first place is it's very, 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 very rare that somebody wants to bite the wolf where someone is like, we need to copy that game and they do a better job and then make more money. Like, I think Fortnite is like the one example that I can think of in the history of that business strategy. You know what I mean? And it was like, that's the one time, you know, and timing. And, yeah. yeah. One, it, one month and a half after. Yeah. That's great. Time. And so I'll end it with this. If you, if you don't know where the target is, right? Because you yourself aren't making the original game. You're copying somebody. Mm-hmm. The best that you could possibly do is be one step in front of the person that you're copying mm-hmm. because you move too far ahead. You don't necessarily know where to bring your game or to bring your project because you were referencing and copying something else in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's that's That might be just total bullshit, but that's the way I think about it, right? Like if I'm copying somebody, I don't want to get too far away or too far ahead because I'll be in front of them, but I'll be, I might be taking my product somewhere completely different than the market that the person who actually understood the reason why they made game design decisions and good choices that made the initial project that I thought was good. Uh They have made decisions based on no information and got to a very good spot. I only made one good decision, which was to emulate everything that they did. So if you then separate the two and say, who has the ability to forecast, move forward and be more right, it's the people that were actually evaluating the landscape based on no information and making good decisions and not necessarily the company that was only looking at the company and then copying. Right. And so that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. Totally agree. I mean, this is where another page from the mobile market helps with every other market, right? They are notorious for daily 
data gathering and analysis and uh you know fixing that to put forth in front of the clients or customers again to test that theory right so it's a very scientific way approach to making games right sometimes it's very it can be frustrating too right for as a game developer or a game designer you have this idea you want to go through it all the way through but you have to have in mind product marketing or uh what you know what people are responding to to an extent because this is again where you as a game developer has to be part of a salesman just by being able to address those type of issues that will be brought up to investors or anybody that you're trying to get finance from, right? You have to justify why your game should exist mm-hmm. when everyone's playing battle Royale right now, because that's hot. Look at how much money it's so. And when it's an investor who's interested in getting, you know, double his investment back or triple investment back, that's all he looks at. So it's up to you as a developer and a person who is, actually in the industry to educate sometimes and so if you go in there and you just poo poo on fortnite or, or anything else that's really hot right now and not have a like a good rebuttal or a good business plan or a good response to that then yeah you're just going to be tells going out of that meeting tell between your legs and you know you're irrelevant right how can i trust you if you don't even know what's going on in your industry that you're trying to really break out of that's a valid point from from the sales pitch point of view. All right. Well, I'd like to bring a person back to the podcast who one is very familiar with the podcast too. I think our listeners are very familiar with this individual or their company, but without further ado and, you know, no more hand waving to try to sell this. uh, I had a lot of fun talking to Teddy and one of the things, sorry, uh, Teddy Bergsman, over at Quixel for the people who don't know. Yeah, so 21. Yeah, he's the CEO at Quixel and they're the team responsible for Megasands, the Quixel suite and all the tools that game developers have been using. Um, really helping pioneer um, photogrammetry and scanning technologies for game developers and giving us that. This isn't a commercial. The interesting part about this episode was Hearing that he was like, yeah, I was 10 years old when I was thinking about how I can start doing all this. You know what I mean? Like when I was 10 years old, I wanted The Rock to win the wrestling belt. Right. That was about the the biggest thing on my mind that I was trying to figure out is was he going to win or not? Uh, So let's jump back into that episode. Let's really hear how you talked about being so early and so, so I guess – like a visionary for where industry trends were going before they even happened and preparing himself, preparing the company – and preparing his tools to be there before the target even showed up. I um I started getting into scanning when I was around sixteen. Uh, mm-hmm. That's I think it was you know I had spent like six years at that point uh, like trying to learn about computer graphics and just having a lot of fun creating assets. Uh, right. And I started to become. Like, six years meaning from 10 years old to 16 yes right? uh, exactly <laughs> this guy so <laughs> modest are you crazy well, i mean larry and i weren't doing shit at 10 to 16 but on, right. on the flip side i yeah. wasted my life <laughs> <laughs> no not at all man uh, that was incredible yeah but uh like i started to become like super nerdy about photorealism i i, I really mm-hmm. wanted to learn how to you know, t- translate something from the real world into the computer and, and, and make it look like in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so I started experimenting with, with a lot of different techniques uh, for like capturing 3D and, and, and textures and all of that jazz. And uh, I remember like my, the first scanner that I built, which I guess you, you can't really call a scanner because it, uh, it's uh, like a, a bucket of, of water that I yeah. uh, uh, put some, some uh, a black uh, watercolor into. So you had this mm. kind of contrasty liquid, and then you would lower things into it while filming it with my super crappy, like 320, 240 webcam. <laughs> <laughs> and you would take that video feed and I would put it into Photoshop. And then like, this is my first experience with like programming in air quotes. Like yeah, I would do a Photoshop macro that would take each frame and for each frame, you will kind of get a slice of, of that uh, thing that you lowered into mm -hmm. the bucket. And so I would make it like binary, so just black and white, and assign just a, a gray value depending on like where in the sequence the frame was, and then you would get a height map. And mm -hmm. so from that height map, you could obviously, you know, derive geometry. And that was kind of the first uh, like revelation for me that I can actually take something from the real world and put it in the computer. How cool, like this, mm -hmm. is, this is super fun. And then I started uh, like, you know, trying to find more advanced ways or, Maybe not more advanced, but at least higher quality ways of putting things into the computer. Um, and so to me, it was kind of it was it was really clear that one day, in order for for like computer graphics production to be truly efficient, especially when you're talking about creating photorealistic experiences, scanning will be instrumental in that process uh, i'm sure you know there will be other processes that will trump scanning uh you know uh, down the line but scanning will have a very very important uh place in the industry because it's the it's single most effective way to uh represent reality mm -hmm. um and, and i guess the biggest challenge was to uh, not only uh, get the geometry right, but also the the, the material behavior, the reflectance, um, yeah. how everything interacts with light. So that was kind of a big journey, trying to learn all about optical physics and and um, how to translate that into some kind of uh, code. <laughs> and um, I think the uh, the advent of of PBR really helped ignite that even more. Because mm -hmm. there was there, there was actually one point when we had two thousand scans in in the library, and none of them were PBR uh, mm -hmm. because PBR wasn't even a thing like back in two thousand eleven. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, being like visiting a lot of studios, you could start to kind of hear those early discussions about you know there's this you know new workflow physically based rendering that it, it it aims to unify like rendering pipelines and workflows. Uh, and that was so much in line with what Megascans was all about. Like it's all about, you know, having a super standardized library of things uh, that just like the standardization in and of itself will just save a lot of time. Mm -hmm. That I just had, I realized that, oh man, I just got to, I got to scrap like 2000 scans. <laughs> so much work. I got to go back to the drawing board. And that's also why, you know, Megascans didn't end up taking three years, ended up taking six years. Right. Um, but uh, I remember like there, there were no papers really back then on, on physically based rendering. So I spent maybe, 
weeks on like ba- my bathroom floor, like just studying surfaces. Like how how do they how do they change like with with viewing distance and and angle and how does that light really react? And then kind of trying to validate that with with whatever physics books that I had and uh, just trying to figure out how that entire thing worked. And um, that, was, that was that was fun. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, it, it started early on. Um, it was also, I think, fueled by me working a little bit uh, alongside the film industry. I was never in the film industry, but being uh, with Sarbis and doing a lot of facial scanning, I spent a lot of time in LA uh, scanning like actors and uh, meeting like directors and directors' assistants. And so sometimes we went on field trips and one of those field trips we went to a, like a old school prop house which is just basically mm-hmm. a huge warehouse where they have props for 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 movies like any era you can think of any type of prop anything from contemporary to sci-fi and um i, I just imagined this thing being available to artists but you know you know, digitally like mm-hmm. why don't we have such a thing because at Starbreeze right. we, we always kind of remade the same props over and over again for new projects mm-hmm. etc and I, I just thought well if there's you know a standardized library of super high quality scans mm-hmm. uh, we don't have to waste that and redo do that work all over, over again and the props you know that no one likes doing like who wants to do a rock for the thousandth time <laughs> Uh, we we can we can try to j- just eliminate that and and so so you can be a little bit more creative uh, on, on a higher level. Um, so, so, so those were kind of the the, the small little uh, I guess sparks yeah, that ignited right. this thing. See, I wasn't kidding. This guy knew at ten years old that he was just going to be on a mission to bring the most realistic looking computer graphics to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if he said, or excuse me, he said, if it looks real in life, I want it to look the same way mm-hmm. on the computer. And that was the quest that he started at 10 years old. Now led him to sitting in the highest chair at a company that is still carrying on that mission. Mm-hmm. So to all the parents out there, if you see your kids doing things with your expensive computers, right? Like, just let it be. Like, they might turn themselves into something one day. Right. You know how many times I got kicked off a computer at 10? <laughs> yeah, I, I still get kicked off. Uh <laughs> But this is this is like a perfect example of a winner. Larry, <laughs> it's like one of those people that we interview on this podcast is like, oh shit, I haven't been doing anything. I mean, all these guests that we're talking about, it's like crap. I need to do some catch up mm-hmm. because uh, I mean, Teddy started with a curiosity, right? He saw a, a, a void basically that needed to be filled, filled, and he he just started with that passion to carry on for the next 20 years to to help propel the industry forward like quicksil is at the forefront of this photogrammetry technology and making that available to both triple a and indie developers and movie studios or all the different industries that needs it so it's really great to kind of hear uh how he you know started very simply right it's a very indie developer spirit and quicksil is still a very indie developer type of company right um and uh i think the way people should think about not just when they're making their own game or project or how they go about wanting to learn a new program to get better at the job or whatever the case 
is to kind of just take a step back sometimes to look at, you know, what can I add value? What my own opinion, you know, how can I change things to make it better? And really going full on with that simple idea because it's, it's that way of thinking that creates a lot of the greats, not just in our industry, right. But in other industries, uh, just that focus on one singular small thing. And then, and I'm sure as a game designer, I mean, that's how you should design games, basically just a simple idea and just thinking of different ways to implement that simple idea to uh, make it more varied. Right. And then building from that. And uh, it's really great that he kind of reiterated that same exact mindset in what he was building. All right. So this last couple, uh, not really partners. Let me, let me have them bring in the champagne for our anniversary episode. Let's set it up. Let's set it up. Yeah, seriously. All right. right. So this last one uh, is from uh, episode 108. And this is a combo. These are you guys are partners, Matt uh, Vigilioni. I hope I say that I'm saying his name right. And Robert Zubek. So these guys uh, can relate to a lot of developers out there, or we can relate to them, right? So they, they were ex AAA, worked at EA for like 15, 20 years. Very cushy job, very familiar to what they do there, but went off. Uh, in incremental steps, very, very careful engineer mindset of how to break off to go indie type mm-hmm. of mindset to c- become, uh, you know, co-founders of uh, Soma Sim that created very uh, great games like Project High Rise, a very popular city building sim game uh, available everywhere. So in this particular segment, they talked exactly that. You know, what was it like to create the first indie title after a city AAA job? And uh, how to plan a bunch of unknowns into Ooh. their budget in terms of finance and in terms of time. Because anytime you do something new, especially indie, even though you're a professional, you have no idea how to... Sh- create the best cushion ever, right? So that's the thing that they talked about. It's sort of a mixture of both of those things I've experienced and just got reaction. Like we do, we, we do something that we stole from, I think it was one of Rob's coworkers from Microsoft. Uh, they call it swag scheduling, which is mm-hmm. people wild best guess. Um, you sort of like <laughs> look at something and go, uh, that's a week. All right. And then, all right, no, wait, maybe it's a week and a half. No, it's a week. No, it's a week and a half. And then you sort of settle on the number. Mm-hmm. And then you put that on like a, a spreadsheet. So, you know, you look at it and say, scenario design. Eh, two weeks. Or like, um... <laughs> and it's funny because it's, uh, it's, it's, it start out with just chopping the entire game that you have in mind into smaller bits. But they can't be too small because once, once you do, uh, once you get into the weeds, and you lose this, this sort of the, the flexibility of it. You sort of chop, chop it up into like week or two week or three week sized chunks. Like one or two weeks is ideal. Um, and you, you know, so you take your vision, you chop it up into little bits. Uh, you take each bit annotated with how much you think it's going to take, and you pad the heck out of it. Right? <laughs> uh, like, because there's going to be so many unknowns, and you don't know how to make how to do this. Like, 
uh, you know, we had like this achievement line items. Like, I've never implemented achievements uh, a week. Mm. <laughs> 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 and, and, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes uh, it happens faster, sometimes it happens slower, and it sort of all kind of averages out. And, and you add like, you know, here's a weak buffer, and here's another uh, weak one buffer. Uh, you know, like this and, that. And, and you sort of take all these cards and you and you lay them out on on the calendar, and and you see sort of like. If it runs over, <laughs> and it yeah, it did. I mean, we sort of in our original plan, like, oh, that's about eleven months, and it was more like fourteen yeah. or <laughs> forty-nine. And mm -hmm. we also had we, also, we had this we had this idea for a lovely multiplayer system for that game. Like, I really liked it. And then we looked at all of the cards that we had built for the multiplayer system, and like, that's like six months of work probably, and that's without any buffering or anything like that. And so we were just decided. Well, that's not going to make it. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I was all those past tense words you guys are using. We had, we yeah. loved. <laughs> we had amazing ideas. Right, and, and you see, like you know, October cards, November cards, December cards, and you're like, oh shit. Yeah, March, and there's still cards. Or <laughs> <laughs> like we had, we have, we have the release date in March, and there are cards that go on. Yeah. <laughs> We're blowing half our budget on index cards. I don't think we can afford any more cards. <laughs> yeah, it's a very important part of the indie process. All right, so that's Matt and Robert uh, from Soma Sim. Great. <laughs> honest <laughs> way to look about budgeting uh, because it is best guess right usually even with a very uh experienced background like theirs 15 years in in the industry uh but when tackling new things you can only it's like half bullshit and half experience really mm -hmm. and what's great from that technique is that it gave them a starting point right they were able to uh put all the features and time it would take on cards and and this is a method that I think in our digital age, a lot of new developers are, are kind of missing out, right? The Everything is on the computer now. Everything is on Trello or, or spreadsheets. But the old method of just putting things on note cards uh, helps kind of visualize like a project's, uh, uh, your ability to complete that project. So mm -hmm. them laying it out, seeing all those things kind of help shape like what their first project can be and should be based on time and and you know their their level of interest to complete it actually right so it was really cool to kind of get their insight because from everyone that we talked to it's always it always seems to average out to like twice as long as they originally think but at least by doing that first pass it moves uh towards your ultimate goal one step further uh yeah. which is you know the 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 ability to keep going forward towards your goal will eventually get you there. And I, I love the idea of just cards in general for task-related things. I like physically being able to crumble up something that I right. finished or toss something that I'd be like, nope, mm -hmm. that's not going to the game and just right. bring it across the room. So I actually just, I like that method as well for a goal achievement. Seeing something physical get smaller and smaller and smaller 
Uh, bug queues just don't do it for me. I like having zero bugs, but like 40 bugs versus 30 bugs feels the same. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's that's a case where I don't want them on cards. <laughs> you show If a producer shows me a wall of bugs I have to fix, I would probably strangle or punch them. <laughs> but wouldn't, you know, wouldn't it be cool to just drop like the tasks on someone's desk physically? Right. Like... <laughs> Here is your work. Oh my god, that Get would kill players. me. That would kill me. Oh man. Yeah. Well, let's go back into the celebration stuff because again, we've been at this for three years, one hundred and fifty-six episodes. And if anybody out there has actually listened to every single episode, seriously, if you have listened to every one hundred and fifty-six episodes of this podcast, please reach out to us in Discord or please reach out to us. Well, it's Discord, actually. Just do it in Discord. I want to hear from you. I want to know if we have a 100% completer platinum trophyist mm. for the Game Dev Unchained podcast. I want to do something special for you. There will be a test, but I you know, I would love to, I'd love to know if you even exist. So that's just a personal thing. But I'm just so happy to be at this point. All the hours and weeks and weeks and weeks of like, got a podcast, got a podcast, got a podcast, rain or shine. Mm-hmm. These are the moments where it's like, oh, yeah, it feels good. Feels good, and I I feel like yeah, uh, you know, it was great. It's been great. Um, I look forward to uh, what's next. We originally created this out of frustration and wanting to do something about our career, and I I think you know our first year was very much like uh, complaining about the issues within the <laughs> industry, and then we had guests on to kind of help liberate game developers to do what they want, right? It doesn't matter if they want to continue doing AAA or get into AAA. It doesn't matter if they want to do indie or work on something uh, that is self-sustainable, and it didn't matter if they want to jump into mobile space and, and do something there, right? We wanted to create and our, uh, our main mission, which is to help support game developers be successful, yeah. basically so um you know our on to our fourth year i believe that we want to find those developers that are like idling in the fields out there not knowing mm-hmm. what to do next and we want to take their hands and kind of help them along and confidently take this step forward to be what they want to be or at least uh inform them of what they could be mm-hmm. uh with the skills that they have developed all these years right so I have a personal pledge, uh, Brandon, uh, kind of putting you on the spot because I never said anything about this before, but uh-huh. I'll just say I have a personal pledge that for the next year on Game Dev Unchained, I want to bring the most fun to this podcast that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I notice about podcasts that I enjoy or just media that I enjoy is mm-hmm. there is a sense of participation, but each whole product feels like I'm having fun. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm just sitting there listening, I'm mm-hmm. still having fun right? Even if I'm learning something, I'm having fun. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that I would like to try to bump up for us on the podcast is Mm -hmm. stepping up the entertainment value Mm -hmm. uh, of our podcast. So liberation, education, and hilarity is... I'm going to buy a fart soundboard, (laughs) buy some whistles. (laughs) But I I totally agree. I mean, uh, this last year alone, we added like uh, well, we we reestablished the Glassdoor Confession to Thing. Roundtable mm-hmm. News is a thing now. 
uh what other segment we we introduced shora as our pop culture thoughts <laughs> right and uh, the next year we want to uh introduce new and better and more informed segments to make you the more educated game developer that you should be and it's just in those segments especially we have a lot of fun aside from learning from awesome professionals to reaching uh you know, great partners to reaching potential awesome people that we in the future we want to work with as well and learn from them. Uh, these segments are hope to uh, to promote you know the fun aspect of just game developers talking about things from the game developer perspective, which I feel uh, is getting better, but is still underrepresented out there. Uh, you, you see a lot of game news, game culture, and stuff. It's from the journalist standpoint, which we need. Uh, but not a lot of game developers have a microphone yet, right? You get your GDCs once a year, and that's it. <laughs> it's like, and then the way they 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 uh, kind of spread that out throughout the year isn't in like TED Talk style, right? It's just like, here's the vault. Mm-hmm. All right, here's something, yeah. and I'll see you next year. <laughs> it's like There's you got to do a lot of self discovery. Yeah. There is, it is saying there is more vault if you pay the GDC okay. vault. I see, I see. Yes, see, yes. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you gotta microtransact <sighs> me for knowledge that's gonna help us. Just to stop. It's like this should be liberated. This should be available to anyone. It should be celebrated uh, more. And as a game developer professional, I feel like it's our duty to do so. Uh, everyone's getting their shine, right? when you're related in the game industry, right? The game game players are being celebrated on Twitch, you know, in competition. Game journalism, right? They're at the forefront talking about news, right? They're getting a lot of traction. But the game developers, you know, outside of like the indie titles that get a lot of notoriety, uh, there isn't really a strong platform for game developers to to kind of talk about things as much and i feel like uh that is still a problem um it's the reason why we don't have a real big voice when it comes to crunch time when it comes to equality when it comes to um stuff that happened like at riot right i mean thankfully kotaku was able to crack that nut and uh it, it it spilled a lot of things about the game industry that has been uh bad but i think that's you know in terms of having fun which is a fun industry you know we, i would love to on on a personal level explore that more um so that you know it'd be great one time if we do an episode that creates a cultural change mm. in the game industry because i i saw that kotaku uh article as a game changer and it actually did something it changed one of the big giants into a a better direction like when was the last time that has happened within the industry yeah ea wives so you know that that is something as a game developer i'm very proud of and uh again that was because someone was really brave in 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 writing an honest article and having the right people and sources to validate those things and uh pushing a change that i haven't seen in my lifetime as a game developer ea wives was before my time so it was great to see it now like yeah we were we weren't 
we weren't super in the industry at that time. I think we were still in school. We were still in school when EAYS happened, yeah. That's huge. That's huge. And I want to see that more consistently because there's still a lot of issues that aren't being tackled on a daily basis, right? Like, I don't want to wait another 12 years <laughs> for something else to be fixed. So, uh, yeah, that that's my my goal for the fourth year to initiate more of those type of changes in any Man. way possible. So season three is getting ready to come to a close. Man, oh, my God. Three. I was I was thirty one when we started the podcast. <laughs> That's the way I can't that I wait look. till we're sixty. If we're sixty, still doing this, and this is like a time capsule for me at this point. Even yeah. when we we were digging for these segments and stuff, I was like, oh man, you know, this is the closest to a diary I'll ever write. I tried journaling once in a while, but you know, that is a habit that I cannot form. But I'm glad I have this podcast to kind of capture my thoughts to, to an industry that I really love. So thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us. And we look forward to season four, year four with you guys. So thanks for listening to our podcast. I hope that you're a subscriber. But if you aren't, please feel free to follow us on any of the major podcast platforms, especially iTunes or Spotify. You can find show notes and more resources available to help you become a successful game developer. Just go on over to our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. If you're interested in keeping the conversation going, then definitely come check us out in Discord, where we chat in real time for after show Tuesdays to discuss episodes and feedback Fridays, where we share screenshots on the projects that we're currently working on. If you go over to patreon.com, you can support our podcast financially. And if you do so, you get access to Life Unchained, our on-the-pulse, unfiltered game dev gossip content that we make exclusively for our Patreon supporters. And as usual, you can keep in touch and follow our happenings on Facebook and Twitter. That's Game Dev Unchained, the podcast.